The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. I take refuge in the Buddha <clears throat> who pervades all ten directions, whose actions are supreme, who is omniscient, whose form is unhindered and unimpeded, the one of great compassion who saves the world. And I take refuge in the intrinsic reality and characteristics of his Dharma body, the ocean of suchness, the Dharma nature, and the store of countless merits. And I take refuge in those who practice in accord with what is true and real. This is because I wish to have sentient beings eliminate doubts and abandon wrongly held views and give rise to correct Mahayana faith, leaving the Buddha lineage uninterrupted. This is, these are the opening lines from a treatise called the Awakening uh, Mahayana Faith, a treatise on the awakening of Mahayana Faith. And it's a text that uh, we studied quite a while ago. There are different translations in, into English that I have, and some of them are still attributed to Ashvagosa, the author who lived in the first century, Indian monk, scholar. But Contemporary scholars think that, that it was written much later in China, in about 6th century. <clears throat> and it brings together teachings of the Tathagatagarbha, the Buddha nature teachings that we studied very recently in Ango, and also the, some of the teachings of the Yogacara school, which we also studied a few years ago. And in... Um, Asian Buddhism, it's enormously important. Um, it's said that it, there are only over 300 commentaries, um, which is a lot. <laughs> um, and that it was really crucial in development of um, Huayan, Chan, also influential in the Tiantai school and Pure Land school. And the text itself, the treatise itself, says that its purpose, um, the author says the purpose in writing it was to cultivate faith. A very, very important aspect of our practice. And I was reflecting how on, in the very early years uh, when I first arrived here, the mention of faith would very often raise eyebrows because um, it was a very different landscape in terms of Buddhism in the West and the familiarity or lack of familiarity that most people had with Buddhism. There's very little written up to that point that was translated into English. There wasn't a lot, wasn't easy to find out about it. And there just wasn't that much, there weren't that many um, practice centers and, and, and practice going on. And so the mention of faith would always sort of automatically bring with it 
notions of the Judeo-Christian tradition and faith in those traditions, as in faith in God. But faith is, in accord with the teachings of Buddhism, extremely important. I mean, just think about its role. I mean, faith is, um, as it's presented in this treatise, is both to draw, um, bring in those who have very little faith or perhaps just have doubts, and to try and instill enough faith that, that one might begin to approach the teachings and begin to approach practice. And then there's the aspect of having arrived, and I think we can reasonably well assume everyone here has arrived, um, to some reasonable amount of faith to be here in Sashin. And even if one's practice is still in the exploration stage in terms of, is this your path? Is Buddha Dharma the body of teachings and practices for you? You have sufficient faith in wanting to know and in those teachings to, to be here in Sashin. So... So having arrived, then faith plays a very important role of bringing us in to those teachings and practices that we haven't verified yet. We don't know if they're true. We may have a lot of confidence that they're true. We may have some confidence that they're true. We may want them to be true, but we haven't verified that yet. We don't know for ourselves. And so in practice, faith becomes verified. One scholar said that Buddhism is of the come and test it tradition. Not come and get it, but come and test it. <laughs> um, and isn't that a very simple way of saying what's true? And this goes back to the time of the Buddha. Come and test it. Find out for yourself. Because faith is as powerful as faith is, right? And so it's, but it's also as fragile as faith is because it hasn't been verified. And so that's the sort of magic of faith, is that it is something that we feel that we can cultivate, we can feel it strengthen, we can feel when it's lacking. And we can see how, how um, demonstrably important it is in giving us trust to enter, to engage, to give ourselves to, to persevere when something is difficult. You know, all of these essential aspects of practice as we are coming and testing it, but that's also what makes it fragile, because at any moment, we can lose that faith. And not yet having verified, then, then where are we? Now what is our ground? What is our basis? What do we rely upon? So we can reinstill faith, which is something we need to learn how to do. And there are many ways to do that, or not. And so it's, it's powerful and it's fragile. And that's why practicing to verify in our own experience 
to whatever degree that's happening, whether it's in very small ways, whether it's in more significant ways, that then becomes our experience. And although the, the sort of immediacy of those experiences can drop away, if we don't keep practicing, they become memories, they are experiences. And so something has been tasted and, and seen to be true. And that's different. So what I wanted to do in this talk and the other two talks I'll give on Saturday and Sunday was, is to take up just one aspect of this teaching um, which is the aspiration to awakening through faith. Three kinds of aspiration to awakening. And the first is the aspiration to awakening through the consummation of faith. The second is the aspiration to awakening through understanding and practicing. And the third is the aspiration to awakening through realizing the way. And what I wanted to do is, was leave off the first aspect of consummation of faith um, for Sunday. I thought that might be more appropriate for Sunday's talk and talk about understanding and practicing the way as a way of aspiring to awakening. This faith in the Dharma. And so the, the, the um, text says... With the aspiration to awakening through understanding and practicing the way, one should know that it is a change for the better. This is because from the first stage of correct faith, bodhisattvas intend to complete this level, that is, this aspect of the bodhisattva path. Through the Dharma of suchness, they profoundly understand what appears before them, since what they cultivate is free of any characteristic that is, in, in realizing the true nature of things. And thus they conform to and practice the paramitas, prajnaparamitas, the perfections, which I spoke about in some depth in the recent retreat. And so right understanding and practicing the way is this aspect of bringing forth aspiration for awakening, bringing forth faith in the aspiration to awaken. And right understanding, of course, is the first of the Eightfold Path. One teacher said that the Buddha saw deeply how, through his realization, how the world works, and thus how practitioners should work. And therefore said that the path is made up of the shila, the, the, the moral teachings and practices, samadhi, calming the mind, working with our restlessness and bringing forth our natural capacity for awareness, for mindfulness, for concentration, and then prajna, insight, direct seeing. And that simple statement of the Buddha seeing how the world works and thus how we should work, right? If all of the troubles of the world in the human realm arise from our being in conflict in a state of conflict, in a state of disharmony, in a state of disruption, both within ourselves, fundamentally within ourselves, and then inevitably with the world. Because we don't know how the world works. Right? Then how could we not be in conflict with it? How could we be in harmony if we don't understand how it works? 
understanding, beginning to develop an understanding of how the world works, then we can begin to work in that way. That's what we call practice. <laughs> practice is simply living in a way that is in accord with how the world works. So at last, <laughs> we have the opportunity to do what every other animate and inanimate object in the world does naturally. Bhikkhubodhi said the importance of right understanding is seen on the basis of how our perspectives and understandings of crucial issues of reality govern our attitudes, our actions, our whole orientation to existence. What he's saying is that everything we do, all of our attitudes, every action we take through our thoughts, words, and physical actions, and our whole orientation to existence, to life, is based in our understanding how we think things work. I mean, think about just the way every person goes about, to some degree, to make decisions about how they want to live their life. What do we want, right, to, to get something, fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, meaning? How do we get there? And then we go. But that's all based on an understanding of how the world works. That if I do these things, I will get those things because that's the way the world works. And so what he's saying is that he's basically asking, in a sense, implicit is, that, is a question. Well, what if that's not the way the world works? And we're going about it, you know, in an honest way, most of us, let's just say. <laughs> Sincerely, we're actually trying to do something, but we don't quite understand how things it's going to be very hard to be successful at that. We may accomplish those things, but it's going to be very hard, for, very difficult to be successful at those things providing us in a deep way with those, those crucial aspects, issues of reality. And so he goes on to say, Buddha saw no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as wrong views, that is, views that are not, don't reflect how things work, and so helpful for wholesome states as right view. And that's why it's the first of the Eightfold Path, which is good because it's also something that we cultivate conceptually. Right? So right understanding in the beginning is having the right ideas about practice, the right thoughts, the right notions, the right attitudes, the right beliefs about the teachings, which are, are the um, sort of, um, let's call it a, the, the operating manual, if you will, for how things work. Right? The teachings are just pointing to how things work 
to bring us into the Dharma. And so in the, in the uh, text, when it says, um, with the aspiration to awaken through understanding and practicing, and to really appreciate how those things, how, how um, utterly dependent those things are. That, that whatever we do in practice has to be dependent upon what we think, not just what we think we're doing, but why we think we're doing that. And, and, and what that's based on. So that's why it's so important to develop right understanding, because if it's not, that's not clear, then it's going to be very, very difficult to practice on the basis of a false or unclear view of the Dharma and practice in accord with the Dharma, right? Just kind of logically makes sense. And so in order to awaken through understanding and practice, one should know that it is a change for the better. <laughs> what an utterly simple way of saying, um, wouldn't we like something that is a change for the better? That is better than samsara, than greed, anger, and illusion, than pain and suffering. And so often the right understanding is sort of defined as understanding karma at a basic level. How do things work? Right? <clears throat> when we are functioning out of what the Buddha called unwholesome views, views that are based in the kleshas, or the, 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 the poisons, in false views, in attachments, and so on, that the consequences of those actions are going to be supporting and strengthening the basis for those actions. That's just how things work. Whereas when those views are wholesome, that is, they're affirming, they're based in wisdom and compassion, they are, they are trying to bring about a change for the better, that they include our concern for ourselves and others, those actions will bring consequences that, um, by the nature of karma, the law of karma, because this is how things work, will strengthen and bring forth those qualities even more. <clears throat> and so we practice to verify that. And as I was saying earlier, I think, was that this morning, that the Buddha said, yes, and be careful, because karma is so profoundly complex and vast that when we try to simply draw a very direct causal relationship between this and that. So you're sitting here on the cushion and you're struggling with a thought or you're struggling with an emotion or you're struggling with your body and you're practicing in a way that you think is in accord with the Dharma and you're not getting what you want in that moment. In other words, that what you feel is difficult is persisting. The Buddha said, don't get overly analytical. <laughs> 
which in that moment might mean don't think this isn't working. Because if it worked, I would get what I want, when I want, how I want. Right? Because that's how we like our desires to be satisfied, according to our desires <laughs> and according to our timeline. And what the Buddha is saying that is karma is immutable, but not on your, not according to your dictates or our dictates, my dictates. And so we have to practice patience. We practice faith. And so understanding karma and then also understanding the Four Noble Truths. That is spoken of again and again, that right understanding is understanding the nature of dukkha, the arising of dukkha, or this deep, pervasive sense of dissatisfaction, disappointment, even in high moments, good moments, moments of session, because they're fleeting, nothing is permanent, we want things to last, and so we grasp, or we have aversion. And so understanding that, and not just, and both understanding conceptually, but also like seeing it, watching it play out. And then understanding the nature of nirvana, of liberation, and then the path. And so through the dharma of suchness, the bodhisattvas profoundly understand what they must do, what we must do. So we apply ourselves to practice. And so we practice the precepts, we practice in session these particular areas, um, practices that we have, walking meditation, sitting meditation, chanting and bowing meditation, eating meditation, lying down meditation throughout the day and night, and in the midst of that, we are practicing the precepts, inwardly and outwardly. And what the treatise is saying is that we should also be practicing the paramitas, which are the practices, the primary practices of the bodhisattva, which of course incorporate the precepts. And in that way, because we have to begin doing that on faith, and in a sense, as long as we are continuing to extend ourselves beyond what we've already experienced, which hopefully be, will be for the rest of our blessed lives, that's faith, right? Because we continue to extend ourselves into areas we don't know yet. They haven't been experienced. They haven't been verified. And so that practice of faith is not just a provisional thing. It's not just a beginning thing. It's something that happens throughout until we're completely enlightened Buddhas which means we'll need to have that faith for a while. <laughs> but, or and, what happens is that, that every time we do that, we bring forth some faith, we practice on the basis of that, and then we see that that's verified. Which means we have to learn how to recognize the verification, because it's not always going to show up in the way we expect it. And that's really important. That's why it's really important to let go of these fixed ideas we have about everything and about what we think calming the mind, being at ease, alertness, mindfulness, just 
anything, pick up any aspect of the Dharma. So we need to develop some understanding of what these terms or principles mean, but also to not fix them, to hold them too tightly. And then what happens is as we experience that sort of validation, it's like, oh, that, that, that faith that I had in the beginning, that I placed, was justified, right? I sort of verified that that was trustworthy, that faith was. And so that sort of strengthens our faith in faith, right? Because we're seeing that it's helping and that it's, 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 it's showing itself to be worthy of our trust in it. And so then we bring it forth again and strengthen it and maybe extend it. And then we bring it forth again and that it begins to extend into areas of the teachings or areas of practice or areas of what we are capable of that in the beginning we didn't allow or we didn't consider. We didn't have faith in those things because they were too big, too distant, too impossible, too much not me. And that's okay. I mean, what are we going to do, fake it? And so, but as time goes on, that sort of building of faith in faith, of confidence in faith, allows us to have more faith and begin to extend it in, in, into the whole of Buddha Dharma. And now I think obviously an important part of this is that faith be based in, in, in not having expectations. Like I said, not having fixed ideas about the how and the what and the when, which is why it's so important just to have a sense, to have a good sense of what is practice. I mean, there's so many moments in my own training where I didn't really understand what was going on to me. Moments of turbulence or confusion or everything was coming apart or my practice seemed to turn to shit. And I couldn't understand why. I didn't see a causal link. So I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't quite tell, I couldn't tell myself a story about it to make sense of it. Right, which we like to do, because then it makes us feel like, okay, well, you know, it's shit, but at least I know why it's shit, right? And I couldn't really do that, or I chose not to just make something up for the sake of the story, and I just thought, what do I know? Well, I think I have a reasonably trustworthy sense of what to practice, of how to practice. Maybe that's enough. Because at this moment, it seems that's pretty much all I got. <laughs> and so I would come back and start over and just do what I knew how to do to the best of my ability and trust that something was going on. Maybe I didn't need to know. Maybe I didn't need to understand. In our, in the, in our tradition, Chan, um, Master Da Wei, in talking about how do we practice this. And the paramitas of dana, of selfless giving, of patience, of 
morality, the precepts of joyful effort, of jhana, meditation, and prajna, these practices are all based in prajna. So they're all based in how things actually work. And so the more those practices are actually based in prajna and based in non-fixedness, based in not falling to one side or the other. And so dhanaparamita is, is, where, is ultimately where the sense of self and giving and gift and receiver are all realized as empty. Right? That a self is not required for giving. There's just giving. And that the more we practice in an accord with prajna, the more it will enlighten our minds and bring benefit to others because the more that means that it is more and more in accord with how things actually work. And so to practice this non-dual dharma, which is, um, you know, I think of it as, 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 it's a true term, but it also can seem very technical. What it really means is just don't get stuck. Which means we have to be rather adept at recognizing when we are. So Master Dawei said, the ancients, the ancient masters said that it is not good to sink into oblivion, that is, into a state of dullness or attachment to stillness or silence or the experience of emptiness. He says, you must be fluid to attain realization. Not static, fluid. You switch immediately on contact. As soon as it is so, then it's not so. Affirmation and negation both shaved away, you naturally turn freely. And so this morning, I think it was, I was talking about dullness, which is one of the sort of occupational inclinations in our tradition. Right? And I spoke about that. The other side of that is agitation, excitement, turbulence. And so affirmation and negation are just different ways of saying that. So whenever we see ourselves swinging to one side, so your body is too taut, too tense, too much effort, then you relax. And then when you notice that your mind or your body have become slack or dull, your posture's caved in, then you brighten it. And that whenever we're experiencing ourselves having landed, right, having sunk into something, and it's becoming fixed, that's the practice of the non-dual dharma. That's the moment when we practice freeing ourselves. So he says, we immediate, in coming into contact with that place of dwelling or abiding or resting or fixing, you switch, you shift. As soon as we make something so, we fix it in our mind, we have an idea of something, then we let go of that and bring in the other side. What is before your eyes is naturally unveiled, Dawei says. Sated and snoring. Hmm. 
You don't know to reject. You don't know to bite. <laughs> Snoring. I would have to guess that that's an accurate, accurate translation, right? Because what, what else would that be like? What is before your eyes is naturally unveiled. It's not hidden. It's sated. It's full. It's complete. It is not lacking anything. And is snoring, which I would take to mean at rest, at ease. And so we don't know to reject. In that state, there is no sense of rejecting or accepting, for that matter. You don't know to bite. There is nothing. He says, haven't you read the saying that detachment from things is superior? And here, detachment, it just means non-attachment. While pursuing things is inferior, which just means it's going to lead to complications. He says, when you get to know this cat face, then you don't need to deliberately quantify it. You don't need to measure it. So there again, what does he mean, cat face? Inscrutable? I don't know. Sort it out on your own relationship with cats. <laughs> but what he's saying is when you get to know that face, which is showing us something, embodying some quality, right, of prajna, of wisdom, of knowing how things work, which cats seem pretty adept at. You don't need to deliberately quantify it. You don't need to measure it. We don't need to do that anymore. He says there's a kind of person who doesn't know how to turn when they bump into something, just keeping at it like someone with diarrhea running to the toilet. <laughs> Poignant image. As for people like this, well... I won't say what he says we should do with them. He's very vigorous, this teacher. When we just keep bumping into the same thing over and over and over again, we're not, something is not being seen, or something is being seen and not responded to well. We haven't yet given up on our hope or our faith that if we just keep doing it one more time, or a thousand more times, it'll eventually work. Someone who is genuine, on the other hand, will rise to a stimulus immediately. If you preen yourself while undisturbed, but then holler in a rage when someone provokes you, what then? In other words, like I said on Sunday in Kian's ordination, if we're going to do this, we should do it. If we're going to put our t time and our, our precious energy and our precious lives into practicing, then we should, we should do it, right? And try and do it to the best of our ability. So we begin with right understanding to understand what does that mean? What, sh what should I be doing? And then we develop these practices because he says, if we don't do that, then we'll, we're likely to practice according to a formula. He says, set views aside and set aside formulas. Don't let anything outside in. Don't let anything inside out. And we do that. 
You know, I mean, have you ever been sitting and been struggling and then suddenly something just, everything falls into place? You feel at ease, you feel settled in your body, your mind clears, and you think, oh, what did I just do? Oh, I think I kind of picked up my spine. Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that every time. <laughs> we turn into a formula, right? <laughs> Which, you know, it makes sense. I mean, it, it helped us. Maybe it will help us again. That's reasonable. But to see when we are expecting something that is not reasonable, when it's become a fixed idea, and we come bumping into that, and now it's not working. And so in practicing these paramitas of giving, and just to not underestimate the importance of that, that here in Sishin, within our silence, and are allowing each of us our solitude as we are practicing in such close quarters, right? Isn't that an interesting, like, mixture of ingredients? Practicing in a solitude, and yet so closely together. There's something very wondrous about that. Very important, I think, actually. And that within that, we have the opportunity to give in so many different ways. And sometimes it's through things that we are asked to do. A meal crew, a service position, a work assignment. But there are innumerable ways in which it's happening that are not asked for. They're just being given freely. And when we really understand practice, in the sutra, the Buddha said, if everyone, everyone understood giving the way I see it, the way I understand it, no one would ever take any food before they had fed others. No one would sit down and just start feeding themselves before they had fed others. If they really understood how profound giving is. Orioki. Isn't that exactly what we do? We go through and list explicitly who we are feeding, who we are offering. We put something on the end of our spatula for those in all the many realms. And then we begin to eat. And so to really appreciate these practices in explicit and more quiet ways, inwardly and outwardly, the precepts that in session we are practicing the precepts. We, we really should be practicing each of those precepts within ourselves, directed towards ourselves. Because those precepts are based in not creating harm. And the affirming aspect of those precepts is about creating good. And so see if that helps when you're getting down on yourself, you're being hypercritical, or you're just in a state that is causing yourself harm. And rather than thinking of it as just, well, this is valid, I deserve this, or I shouldn't do this, but I am, think of it from the point of view of the precepts. That this habit is, is, is a habit and it's harmful. I'm hurting myself. And patience 
knowing the essential nature of reality without suffering that is free from anger and anxiety, then bodhisattvas being in accord with their practice, patience, and forbearance. So patience means being able to abide in practice, to just practice. When it's going well, when it's not going well, when it's easy, when it's difficult, to just be patient and practice. And bring that faith forward. Have faith in the Dharma. Consider all of the practitioners who are surrounding you, who are practicing, who are part of the Sangha, all of those hundreds of thousands who have come before us, back to the Buddha. Consider them. And think about the fact that whatever you're experiencing that in this moment, just by the odds, has been experienced hundreds and thousands of times by others. And that when something is persisting, does stick around, is difficult, <clears throat> for a moment, for a period of zazen, for a day, for a whole session, for longer, to forbear. Sometimes we just have to carry something that is heavy to carry. And life brings such things to us. Sickness, old age, death. But how do we carry it? How do we carry it? And so that patience doesn't descend into a kind of complacency or waiting, there's the paramit of vigor. Effort, joyful effort, enthusiastic effort. You know, not out there just breaking rocks all day, right? Just punishing effort like Sisyphus. But joyful effort. And what helps it to be joyful is faith and patience. And the paramit and the and the precepts. When we don't burden our burden when we don't add weight to what has weight. It's already lighter. And so that vigor, right? And it's a, it's a really important practice to bring that in. I remember <laughs> Jisho, when she was the Shuso many, many years ago, we were getting ready for Zazen. Um, I wasn't sitting here. I wasn't, I was sitting over there. And, but she was here. And I was sitting, and there were some people before Zazen was starting just sitting in the hallway. And she just hollers out and says, what are you waiting for? <laughs> and so, to, you know, sometimes we, our hearts are open, we have that enthusiasm, and we move, and our body follows. And sometimes that's just not naturally there. So move your body. When the alarm goes off in the morning or your wake-up bell, just get up. Get up. Get up with that kind of, that paramita, that vigor. Right? Move your body. Let your body help you, serve you. And then if your mind is dragging, okay, you have a practice. But lead with your body. And then our zazen, transcendent concentration. Because the nature of reality is always calm and free of confusion. 
we practice in accord with that. We practice zazen to come into accord with that. And because that is not, it's our natural state, it's our natural mind, but it's not our, our normally experienced state in the beginning of practice, we have to become very skillful at practicing our lack of calm, at practicing our confusion, practicing our agitation, all of the different waves that pass through. How do we do that? By being giving, by practicing the precepts, directing them towards ourselves, by patience, by vigor. And in that way, we're entering into, coming closer to cultivating our wisdom and our compassion together at the same time. So as we're practicing, as you're practicing, you know, as we encounter these different teachings, to really take them in and reflect on them so that in different moments you can draw upon different aspects, different teachings to encourage yourself, to motivate yourself, to remind yourself, to instill that faith right, in the Dharma. So that we're not just sitting there and sort of, you know, ardently but kind of a little blindly just hammering away but that we're doing it with, a, with a, a consciousness and a kind of conscientiousness, understanding and practice is an aspiration to awakening. So let's benefit ourselves in this way. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.